You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to Beyond the Headlines with your host, veteran journalist, Darren Nichols. Welcome to another edition of Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Darren Nichols. Before we get started, I wanted to say happy birthday. That's right. Last week, we celebrated our first year on the podcast. It's been a wonderful journey, and I hope you can continue with us on this ride. With us today is Natasha Robinson of Kalamazoo, who recently penned a story about her daily life with her son, Isaiah, who suffers with a multitude of issues, including mental health. Welcome, Natasha. Thanks for having me, Darren. Of course, of course. Um, As we're sort of, before we get into the conversation, um, tell everybody about yourself and, and some of the things you've done so far. Great. So my name is Natasha Robinson. Um, I'm 33, and like Darren said, I live in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, I'm a Wayne State University graduate with a degree in journalism, and currently I work part-time as a church secretary um, and a virtual assistant uh, because having those kind of simpler, low-key jobs helps me to do the things I need to do with my son's health needs. So um, that's just a little bit about me. Um, Isaiah is nine, and he's my only child. Okay. And and tell us a little bit about Isaiah and just sort of um, what he's he's been through and what and some of the change, challenges um, you all have had to go through. Okay. So um, in the last year, I would say things have have been really rough with Isaiah. Um, a few years ago, he was diagnosed with autism. Prior to the autism diagnosis, he was diagnosed with ADHD, um, which is Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, But I knew there was more to it than that because of his symptoms and and things that he displayed. He had some pretty severe sensory issues where uh, different food textures or doing things like washing his face and brushing his teeth Uh, really caused a lot of distress for him. So uh, we went through some different therapies and eventually went and participated in a study at Duke University. uh, And they determined there that he did have autism. And um, that was confirmed with a medical diagnosis by the University of North Carolina's uh, TEACH Center. So uh, after that, we were able to do some more intensive therapies uh, while we were living in North Carolina and um, then came back to Kalamazoo um, for more family support. And um, I would say since January of last year, 2019, um, I've seen his condition, um, I guess, deteriorate with uh, you know, I never, I never know always what the right way to say things is, but um, his behaviors were more severe. It, it was harder to calm him down. Um, the medication that we were working through and the, the therapies that we were doing, um, it wasn't enough to really help him have successful days the way they were before. Okay. Um, and so... We mentioned a little bit earlier that you did a piece for M Live, uh, the Kalamazoo uh, edition, and so um, talk to us about how the story came about. Um, primarily because you've been featured um, in their paper um, f- on a number of occasions, and so talk how, t- talk to us about how this came about and whether it was tough or not for you to um, write it down, and what made you do it. Oh, it was very tough. Like, um, so just for some background, I am, I'm from Kalamazoo. Uh, I did do an internship at the Kalamazoo Gazette 
uh, which is part of Live now, um, back in uh, 2006. And so I loosely had some continuing relationships with some of the reporters and, and kept in touch on social media. And so um, there would be times where, like on Facebook, I might post um, questions about, does anybody know a resource for this situation or that situation uh, pertaining to Isaiah's mental health needs? And just the circumstances of, you know, like situations where, you know, he had to leave Target in an ambulance because he had a an escalation there and he had gotten unsafe to the point where I couldn't drive him home and he couldn't calm down just by being talked to. So, you know, it required medical intervention. And so um, by sharing that with folks who were in a closer friends list, um, I was able to connect to the reporter, Julie Mack, who was working on a series on mental health needs after she caught wind of the fact that um, people who needed inpatient psychiatric care were having a really hard time finding it as a result of um, many of the psychiatric hospitals in the state closing. And, um, you know, that's just like a trickle-down effect from how the government has done things and made choices to close down those facilities in favor of um, doing more community options. Um, But those community options don't always help in some really severe cases. So what we ran into um, as I was, you know, trying to get support for Isaiah was that we we were told that we were on a wait list for him to actually go in for an inpatient hospitalization and um we waited all summer and still didn't have space for him to go in anywhere and so that frustration um you know him and his behavior not uh improving timed with the article that julie was working on the series that she was working on just all kind of fit at the same time so um, I talked to Isaiah and asked him if he was willing to participate and, and, and talk to people about what was going on and, and, and his struggle to basically feel okay most days. And he was willing to participate. So um, that's how we got involved with the article. And so... People can actually find the whole series if they go to mlive.com backslash mental-health, and they'll be able to see um, the different stories and the profile and then the first-person essay that I wrote, as well as some profiles of other folks that they interviewed. Okay. Um, and and so, as you've mentioned before, you're from former journalist. And so I'm curious as to how much different was it writing this piece than others and if you were nervous and the kind of feedback you received as a result of writing your piece. Oh, I was absolutely nervous because, I mean, so from the perspective for me, it's like, you know, first you're putting out your child's medical information and you know, in this day and age, like, you can't really retract anything that you put out there. Like, there, there's no way to make it disappear. So, you know, I have to make sure that as I think about what kind of future I want him to have, um, you know, that people wouldn't discriminate against him because of how things have been difficult in his childhood or the fact that, you know, he might have had the inpatient hospitalization Um, On the flip side, it was just like, you know, as a journalist, I know how important it is to to have human human accounts and not just data and facts and figures because the human stories actually allow you to see where the impact is and and in real life what it's like. So um, 
you know, I'm a mother first always. And so I, I think about, um, okay, how is this going to impact Isaiah and, and being honest with him that like, Hey, you know, you're going to be like famous, but people are going to also know that, you know, sometimes you get upset about this or sometimes you get upset about that. And how will you feel if um, people know these things about you? Sure. He was okay with it. And so, um, you know, that's why I went ahead and, and said it was okay. And I talked to my my mother and father and made sure, like, you know, they were okay with it because, you know, they play a role in, in helping to support us and, um, you know, being, being the major support system for us. So I wanted to make sure that everybody who could be impacted one way or the other was aware and um, on board. And then I also wanted to make sure that the journalists who were writing the story and the folks who took the pictures and the video had a really clear understanding and how um, things should be framed because I didn't want it to be um, like a woe is me. I really wanted it to be like, what is the solution, you know? And so one of the things that I did was I asked them, hey, as part of the series and because I have the writing skills, can I also write a first-person essay, you know, instead of just the profile that they were doing? And so they actually agreed and allowed me to do that essay. And um, they really didn't edit it much at all. So um, it was nice to be able to have that platform for my voice. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm not surprised that they didn't really edit your, your stuff because, I mean, you're you're a product of the gym program. I mean, what did, what did you expect? Yes. I mean, you got trained by some of the best around. So, you know, yes. you know, so that that part of it doesn't surprise me at all. So, you know, and plus, because I started you on your journey. So, you know, Absolutely. I mean, so so as a result, you know, if if you got edited, it's not my fault. I put it to you that way. <laughs> That's funny, but yeah, you you've been in in there since I was a little journalism babe, and and here we are. Yes, so, yes, and great. And so, with this, what did you want people to learn from from your story, from your your essay? What it, what was the one thing that you wanted to? Because you mentioned you didn't want um, a "woe is me" um, uh, mm-hmm. essay. Um, when I read it, I certainly did not. Um, get the sense that you were um, saying, woe is me. Um, so what is the mm-hmm. one thing, what is some of the things that you wanted uh, people to learn from, from what you wrote? Well, um, oh, I mean, there was so much, right? Because, you know, for me, it's hard to go grocery shopping with my son without him having an escalation of his behavior. And so there have been a couple of times where we've been out in Kalamazoo and he's had some really public incidents where he's like um, pulled flowers out of the vases and like literally stumped on them or he's calling people out their names and being very vulgar and just running around crazy. And I mean, you know, I, I see people post videos of kids doing things like this, and then people react with, like, oh, that kid needs a whooping, or, you know, oh, that kid is terrible. But then I look at my son, and I'm like, you know, if somebody were to record us in these moments, how are they looking at him? Are they seeing that this is a mental health crisis, or are they thinking, oh, this is another spoiled brat not getting what he wants? Right. It's a mental health crisis. And people need to be aware that, you know, every time you see a child on the floor in the candy aisle or anywhere else, it's not because they're not getting what they want um, and can't handle that. They may have a sensory overload. You know, they might be hungry and don't know how to say I'm hungry and it comes out as a meltdown. Right. Um there's a lot of reasons. And so, you know, one of the things 
um, that I really wanted to to demonstrate or or ask folks is to kind of step back and and look at things more with the lens of kindness and asking how you might support someone through those situations because I mean had I not had some some angels helping me a couple of times when those incidents were going on things could have ended a lot differently sure. so um you know I've been fortunate to have people react kindly to me but I know that everybody has not had that same um you know that same response sure so that was one piece of it. The other piece is that um, people tend to think that the mental health system is adequate how it is um, or that people people just don't get the help that they need because they don't want to or, you know, things like that. Well, in reality, I'm out here every day trying to find um, a way to help my son feel better and a way to keep myself afloat and all these sorts of things. And so um, at that point, um, I had been through community mental health. Uh, We had solidly been going through different programs, different medications, seeing the psychiatrist. And um, it just felt so much like they were not equipped to handle his complexities. And so um, they would do the pre-screens and say, okay, he meets the criteria for hospitalization. But on those days, if there was not a bed available for a child his age and with his needs, then there's no hospitalization for him. He just gets sent home. So how do I, as a parent, manage that when you're telling me his behavior is so severe, he should be at a hospital, but he still gets sent home with me and there's no in-between. Sure. And so, and that's oh. what, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, and, and so that kind of leads me to the next question that I wanted to get to is um, how difficult is it to, to parent Isaiah um, given his issues? And also tell us, you know, a, a little bit about how he's doing now. Well, I mean, honestly, life with him can change hour by hour. Um, This morning, we had what I call a no alarm morning, which I typically do to give us a little grace if we've had a rough night. Um, You know, it can be really intense to have to be to school on time sometimes, you know, and that's one of the reasons why. You know, I have to work a more flexible job because when I was working a job where I had to be there by nine o'clock every day, I was not making it on time. And a lot of that would depend on how the middle of the night went. So, for instance, last night, he was having different outbursts because he was having demands about different things. He was a little paranoid about noises that he was hearing, which was really like, the neighbors coming up and down their stairs on the other side of the wall, um, a dishwasher going, you know, some of those things. But he has a hard time understanding that, you know, there's there's not a boogeyman or whatever. This is just like normal apartment living noise. Sure. And um, so when it freaks him out like that, he will have a meltdown. Then I have to try to help him implement his coping skills and um, hope that he sleeps through the night okay. Right. And so, you know, I I gave us some grace this morning. And um, actually, while I was in the shower, he actually woke up and he got himself dressed. And that was a really, like, that was a win for me because, and for him too, because the, it doesn't always happen that easily. Like, mornings are usually a fight to get out the door. So, um, you know, it was like, wow, we had a smooth morning today, but, um, it came after a really rough night. And, um, just a couple of days ago, you know, we were almost on our way to the hospital because 
he had run away from home and I had to call the sheriff and everybody to try to um, keep him safe and not running around on a busy road. Um, He actually wrote his name on the side of my car, which is like permanent damage, you know? So it's different stuff like that that comes up where you're just like, okay, God, give me the strength because um, you love your child. You want the best for them. Um, You know, like for me, I know he learns differently. Um, It just, it's a challenge every day, um, but I have to take it moment by moment and just remember to extend the same kind of grace to him that I would want for myself. Yes, absolutely. And so, I mean, the, the most extreme that you started off your piece with was that Isaiah on several occasions said that he was – or you mentioned that he tried to kill you. And so mm-hmm. how difficult is that to manage to to know that his outbursts or his rage can reach that point. Um, and what types of um, things do you use to to calm him down? Um, because with with my son, I kind of try to talk to him, uh, you know, in softer tones to kind of get him to calm down. So what kind of things mm-hmm. can, you know, what kind of things that you uh, do in order to calm him down, and that can be sort of uh, tips for people um, who are going through very similar kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, it's very scary to know that your child can carry that much rage and also be so impulsive that they would attack you um, and not just say the words that they want to kill you, but actually like try to damage your body um, and physically harm you. And, um, and that is, it's really hard to, to bounce back from that. Um, I do go to therapy myself. I have a great therapist Um, and, you know, I rely on family and friends, my girlfriends who are nearby. Um, I, I count on people to help keep me, uh, lifted up and going uh, when those those days are really rough. And so that's helpful. Um, but in those moments when I do try to reach Isaiah to help de-escalate whatever the situation is, the first thing I really do is um, try to make his world smaller. And so um, that might mean that um, we're just in one corner of a room or in the bedroom, we'll close the door, um, take away things that might be too stimulating, turn the lights down lower. Um, sometimes for him, sitting in the bathtub or taking a shower is helpful. Um, calling mobile crisis or calling grandma is, is another thing that can be helpful for him. Um, but yeah, at a certain point when he escalates and and none of those things work, I just have to go through the process and actually take him to the hospital and they will evaluate him. And um, if he hasn't kind of calmed down or come out of whatever um, escalation he's in, then they will give him medication that will help him to sort of reset and feel better. Okay. And so... With all that you've explained, you know, over the last few minutes, um, clearly this is sort of really taxing on you. And so Mm -hmm. talk to me about how difficult that is for you, um, how he has, you know, impacted your life, not just necessarily in the day-to-day stuff, but um, like you mentioned before, um, with your jobs um, Mm -hmm. and then also getting free time that normal people or other people do. I don't want to say normal to try to, you know, say that you're <laughs> yeah. abnormal, but, you right, know, right. but that's a different normal. <laughs> yes. It's a different normal. Um, yeah. But, you know, kind of what do you do to free yourself in order to have some time for yourself as well? So, I mean, realistically, um, 
I don't have that much freedom. Um, and I just, at this point, have had to kind of learn to be okay with that and not in that cycle of, oh, it's not fair, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, it's one of those things where, like, everybody has their, their lot in life. And right now, this one is mine. Um I do have a couple of respite providers that um, we just started with um, within the last couple of months. And so um, they've come in and, and helped out every with a couple hours at a time. And I think as that, uh, that relationship builds, then hopefully we can get more time. But I have had to make sacrifices. Like, um, I haven't been able to work full-time since 2014. Um, you know, he got kicked out of daycares when he was younger, and lots of those sorts of situations just make it hard. Um, I've been a single mom since I was pregnant, you know. Sure. So it's one of those things where, you know, I kind of, knew going in that I was going to have a lot of work to do. I didn't know it was going to be this much work, but um, I knew I was going to have a lot of work to do. Um, I just didn't imagine like that I wouldn't be working full time. You know, my student loans are piling up because like I, I pursued a master's degree through University of Phoenix and, and so I got the master's degree and I don't even earn enough money to even start to pay those back. And um, as a result, like my debt to income ratio is way off. So I can't get a mortgage to like buy a house. And and so then we live in an apartment and things like that. And um, living in an apartment is part of what kind of triggers him because he hears random noises at different times. And he's like, ah, so he sleeps in my room, you know? So it's just like, um, I've sacrificed a lot of personal space to make sure that um, he's as okay as he can be at any given time. And, um, you know, that also equals, like, not really dating. You know, I'm thankful I have a close circle of girlfriends who, um, you know, they know Isaiah, they know the behaviors, they know the struggles, and they still let us come over, and they still invite us to things, and, you know, we still try to get our kids together and stuff like that, but, um, you know, I don't get to go on girls' trips and and stuff like that, really, because um, it's just a lot to manage with him. Sure. And I also don't have the money to do it, so, I mean, like, literally in the last year, I have been living off of GoFundMe, you know, type of donations and stuff and, um, you know, working like 10 hours a week. So, wow. I didn't know that you were working only 10 hours a week. That's, that's. Yeah. And, and you know what, honestly, some hours, some weeks, I don't even get the 10 hours in because of how, how things go with him. So it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, even the 10 hours a week can be a struggle because after I take care of him, um, I have to try to take care of myself. And, and sometimes the only way to do that is that I go to sleep in the middle of the day. Um, so that way, by the time I pick him up from school, I will be ready for whatever might come up. Gotcha. You know? Yes. Yeah. I understand. And so with all of this, you know, that you've, you know, articulated, how do you stay upbeat in this situation or, or are you upbeat um, uh, in this situation or is it a mix of, um, you know, your, your, you have your good moments and your bad moments. Um, How, how do you, how do you deal with this in in a certain way? It, It definitely, I go in waves. I mean, it's really, you know, just as much as, like, I work on coping skills with him, I do have coping skills for myself. Like, you know, on Monday, I bought myself a small bouquet of flowers from Aldi, 
you know, and it was four bucks, but I put them in my office and um, it's just a nice thing to look at, you know, um, and and it's a good reminder of like bright things in life. Sure. So um, I do that. I have some some go to songs that I listen to for different modes, you know, like between Beyonce and gospel and, you know, <laughs> different things like that. Um, you know, it helps me get through the moment. So, so, um, so the Bay Hive gets you through, huh? Oh yeah. Okay. All right. That's, that's not oh, a, yeah. that's not a bad thing. You know, I mean, you've, nope. you've got to be able to turn to, uh, whatever you can do to bring that, um, sense of peace, uh, to your, to your, your home and to what you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, yeah. Know. And, and you know, I just use my, my Young Living oils. I've got the lavenders and the peppermints, and and um, I really like the Joy Blend. So I put those in my diffuser and, and let those go, and that helps to uplift the environment for me. Sure. And so let's go back to some something that you sort of talked about a little bit earlier in terms of um, mm-hmm. getting services for Isaiah. How how difficult is it to get um, adequate um, health care services for, for Isaiah? It has been a challenge. Um, and I think, so part of it is because of his age. So there is not, like there's a psychiatry shortage just in general. So um, the article kind of spells out more like, how many psychiatrists per 100,000 people there are in the state. And I don't know that number right offhand. But then when you start to break it down by like, okay, how many are actually licensed to prescribe for a child who's eight or nine years old, then that changes pretty drastically. Because every psychiatrist who has a psychiatry degree is not able to prescribe for a kid that young. And that was something that I didn't realize either. So um, even within the CMH system here that um, where we're going in Kalamazoo, there's only like three providers that we could actually see through CMH um, who could actually prescribe for his age. Okay. So um, one of them works Mondays and Tuesdays. The one that we see works Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. She's actually a nurse practitioner or like an art. I don't know if she's an RN or a nurse practitioner, but she's not an actual like MD, but she she's studied psychiatry, so she knows what she's doing in psychiatry. And then the other one, I'm not sure what his schedule is, but um, we've been to two out of the three and then there was another one that we saw in that office, like on an emergency appointment, who um, has some experience, but I think somebody else has to do the prescribing or, you know, something like that. But um, those sorts of things can kind of be a barrier to um, actually having some comprehensive care because you've got shortages in these really critical areas. Okay. Um- I want to sort of go back to and go into a little bit more depth depth about something that you talked about earlier. You talked about Isaiah and he ran away um, not too long ago mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. how you dealt with the police so that they don't know how to deal with – so that they will know how to deal with him. And so mm-hmm. like we know what happens with the relationship between African-American men and the police. And mm-hmm. so when Isaiah goes through these episodes and he goes through um, running away from home, like you mentioned before, you know, mm-hmm. how, how anxious does this make you as a as a mother of a of a African-American, African-American male son? And um, what is it that you try to do and what is it that you teach Isaiah in, in, in those moments? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, in, in a certain sense, he may be blacking out and he doesn't really realize what he's doing. Um, and and that mm-hmm. may trigger a police officer or someone to do something um, that they shouldn't do. So so what is it that you try to tell Isaiah 
and and also how anxious does it make you when he when he's running across Stadium Drive and and for people who don't know what Stadium Drive is in Kalamazoo it's kind of like uh crossing telegraph uh mm-hmm. in this area and so talk to me yeah. a little bit about that so um when he runs i'm already anxious <laughs> um my heart is already racing um but anyone who's a, a mother or father or auntie or somebody who loves a child um you know that feeling in your your body when a child is in danger and you have to just act and not do a whole lot of thinking you just have to act in that moment and so whatever that feeling is that's that's what i have to go with and just do the best i can to keep him safe um most of the time when he runs um I do my best to just keep my eyes on him because I am not a sprinter. Um, I am like five, four, 200 pounds. And um, I, I just running has never been my favorite thing, sure. but he's nine and he's fast and he, he goes. And um, when he's going and he's impulsive, um, you know, cars will be going by uh, people, aren't anticipating that a little kid would be just having a mental health crisis and running out in the road and somewhere like stadium drive, you can't just stop out in the road and say, Hey, my kid's running. So everybody stop, you know, it doesn't work that way. So, um, so I do usually have to call the sheriff if he gets to that point where um, he's out and um, traffic is going and, and I can't reach him and he's not willingly coming back to me. Um, and then, yes, I have the other layer of fear that when I initiate this call to the police, how many will show up? Did they hear the dispatcher the right way when I say he's having a mental health crisis and he does not have a weapon? You know, like, I just, I always hope that wires don't get crossed because the last thing I want is for, like, four or five cars to show up with guns drawn or, or something like that. And then an accident happens and I lose my child. Like it just, all of that flashes through my head as I'm on the phone with them. But I also realize, like, you know, their first priority is to help keep him safe. And so I try to bank on that. Um, when I dial 911, I try to bank on the fact that, they are here to serve and protect, and please let them just do that part, you know. Um, most of the time, the officers who are responding are Caucasian. Um, I know a couple of them have said that the um, sheriff's department or the Department of Public Safety offered them some training on dealing with mental health crises. So. Um, I'm finding that when they respond, they are more willing to listen to what I need rather than coming in and being like aggressive with him or anything like that. So I'm really thankful. Um, that does help. Um, there's only been one time where I was like really like um, regretted having asked an officer for some support. And that was one day when we were leaving the hospital and he was still kind of like really edgy. Um, and he was having a hard time just getting in the car, putting his seatbelt on, doing the right thing. And an officer came out to kind of help and intervene. And he started like kicking at the officer and cussing him out. And, you know, he was doing everything opposite of what I have ever told him to do when it comes to interactions with the police officer. And so I was kind of like, okay, please don't let this officer feel like his life is in danger because of my, you know, then eight-year-old child being physically, you know, kind of aggressive toward him. So um, fortunately it ended well and, you know, Isaiah calmed down and got in the car and we were able to go, but it just, it it does make your heart 
just do all kinds of things when you have to kind of like call the police to help you support um, taking care of your black son. Sure, sure. <laughs> it just, it's not easy. Right. Um, a little bit earlier, you talked about uh, your, your master's degree in psychology. Um, and mm-hmm. so how is that training or how is that uh, education helped in dealing with your son? Um, and had, have any of the things that you've learned in the classroom are uh, things that you use with your son? So the degree that I received from the University of Phoenix um, for psychology It was definitely not, it's not a clinical degree. So, um, like, I wouldn't be able to get certified as a a therapist or anything with that degree. Um, But it's definitely useful for things like human resources, leadership, being a supervisor and that sort of thing. Um, One of the things that I was able to pull from it was really early on understanding the difference between Um, what makes something a disorder versus, like, this will pass. It's just kind of a phase. So I feel like it has helped me to advocate more um, in knowing that, hey, you know, what he's going through right now is not just a stage. It's not something that's just going to pass. This is impacting his daily life to the point where he's not, hitting this milestone or he's not keeping friends or, you know, not being invited to birthday parties or, you know, things like that. So, you know, I was able, I think, to advocate better because I did start to learn the terminology more. Um, You know, I had a really good overview of different types of disorders and what they might look like. And then, um, I had a pretty solid understanding of what sort of milestones would happen at different ages. So it did help me to look for what might have been considered abnormal or um, not neurotypical. Okay. And so what, what type of advice would you give to parents from, from my vantage point um, it would be to advocate, 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 right? Um, mm-hmm. b- because you, as as a parent um, that's dealing in with these kinds of situations, the only person who really understands the situation that's going on um, is the parent or the parents that that are dealing with these children. So you have to, you know, advocate for the IEPs. You have to advocate for you know um, his outbursts. Um, and anything else mm-hmm. that that may be going through, he may be going through. So, what advice would you give to parents um, that are dealing with these sort of situations, and particularly when you're talking about children that are are really young? Because um, mm-hmm. when when we're, when particularly with in in schools, when they're dealing with children that are five and six and seven years old. They don't mm-hmm. have the resources or maybe even the understanding of how to deal with a child in that kind of situation. So give me some mm-hmm. of your thoughts on um, advice that you could give to parents. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is always just remember to breathe um, because when you forget how to breathe, it it makes everything harder. Um, you will li- literally go lightheaded trying to figure things out while clenching every part of your body. So um, just remembering to have good breathing practices is really important to like being able to succeed in your advocacy and in and making healthy choices and how you um, help your children cope through what they're going through. Um, and, and that's even in the school setting for teachers and, and principals and all the folks who are dealing with kids who who might have some things going on. Um, like you said, advocate, um, go with your gut because, you know, you do, you will probably notice things that may not necessarily be on the doctor's checklist. Um, and if you mention it and it works in conjunction with something else, 
then they may actually say, oh, well, maybe we could explore this. Um, like, for instance, um, right now we're kind of in exploring if there could be something going on with his endocrine system that's making him more like hype, you know. It, it may literally be a biological thing where he's just got too much of a hormone flowing through his system that's making his behavior more escalated than it was a year ago, you know. Um, so I would say, you know, don't hesitate to think outside of the box and to um, encourage your healthcare providers, your team, to think outside of the box too. Um, I know that for me, um, I'm very much Isaiah's care manager, just like I am his mother, I'm his care manager. And I, I make sure the support coordinators and the doctors and the therapists and the school and all these folks who are in his life helping him out have an understanding of what else is happening with the other folks in his life. Because that's the only way, I think, to, to make it a more comprehensive way to care. And um, it does take a lot of energy, <laughs> but it, it's necessary, I think, for you to have some success in, in treatment. And then the other thing is um, I don't let them tell me no. Uh, if somebody doesn't have the answer, I ask somebody else. And if that somebody else doesn't have an answer, I find somebody else, you know, um, because some way, somehow, there's got to be an answer or a reason or something behind whatever they say. And if somebody tells you that the rule is X, Y, and Z, have them show you in writing. If they tell you it's a no, have them show you in writing why they can't execute whatever it is you're asking for. And so as we get ready ready to wrap up, um, give us your final thoughts on um, everything that we sort of talked, to, talked about this afternoon and anything uh, that uh, I, we may have missed in, in our conversation. You know, I think um, really to sum it all up, like um, I know Isaiah is, a really bright nine-year-old who he loves life. He's enjoying doing martial arts. He's starting to write and draw his own comics. He loves to build his Legos. Um, he likes going to the movies. Um, there are very regular, normal things that he likes to do as a nine-year-old boy that, um, sometimes are made a little bit more difficult because of his brain being wired differently, his body being wired differently. Um, but that doesn't mean that he should be left out of those opportunities. So my goal in my fight is, um, is to help him. is to help him have the opportunity to do everything that he wants to do in his life and to succeed. Take your time. So I'm working really hard <laughs> to make sure that him and, you know, other kids like him have the resources that they need um, to thrive because they deserve it. You know, they're our next generation of doctors and scientists and <laughs> garbage men and electricians and all these sorts of things. And, you know, if I can't help him get on track with his medications and things right now, you know, there's less hope for him to, to become what he wants to be in the future and to be a positive contribution to society. And um, he's too bright 
to not have that opportunity. Okay. Well, so. okay. Well, Natasha, thank you immensely um, for uh, taking time out and speaking with us about a very difficult situation that you're going through and a difficult situation um, that others go through and being an advocate for not only your son but others um, that may have issues um, that are similar to yours. And so um, you you know that, that you can always count on people like me to help you through your rough moments and that you also have a support system around you. And so, uh, again, we thank you for, for being on and to, to um, bring the honesty um, and the transparency of, of what you're going through um, because you could have easily have decided that, you know, you only tell people half the story um, or right. you only tell people about the good things that are happening with Isaiah. And uh-huh. you, you have been uh-huh. um, very transparent in telling us the good and showing us the good and the bad that deals with your son. So, again, I want to thank you for appearing on the show and uh, you will certainly be able to connect real soon. Thank you. Okay. And with that, we're going to conclude another edition of Beyond the Headlines. And we leave Beyond the Headlines. I want to give our listeners an inspirational quote for you guys to ponder each week as you get ready for the new show. It's from Dr. Martin Luther King. It reads, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl, but whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Until next time, we'll see you on Beyond the Headlines.